Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So, um, as I said, I'm excited about uh, Deborah Berliner coming uh, next week and uh, leading us in being more conscious about what we do in our lives and with our resources. <clears throat> and it's, it's an interesting thing how uh, out, of, out of difficulty, good stuff happens. Out of uh, the economy going through whatever it does, all of a sudden people are seeing that it's not as cool to be um, completely filled with greed. In the, in the article uh, this, in this week's Newsweek, there's two articles about this. One is called Luxury Shame. <laughs> Why even the very rich are cutting back on conspicuous consumption. It's a great article. Uh, I'll read a little bit. You probably will have fun. Multimillionaire Michael Hertenstein used to flaunt his acquisitions of opulent real estate. I collect homes because I enjoy it. He once talked about his eight properties, which included a $27 million apartment on the 76th floor of Manhattan's Time Warner Center. Um, goes on to say he's he reneged on his plans for a $35 million glass-enclosed duplex in Manhattan's Tribeca neighborhood. He's, he's cutting down. <laughs> and that um, the wealthy are going blingless and eschewing the spending sprees of recent Gilded Age. The trend is horrible news for the $175 billion global luxury market which is already absorbing the blows of plummeting personal wealth. Um, Neiman Marcus, Saks Fifth Avenue, Bentley, BMW, Christie's, Sotheby's, they're all feeling this new embarrassment of riches. Ads in the December issues of major luxury magazines have plunged 22% from last year. Travel and leisure and uh, Travel and Leisure and Departures magazines, among others, ads just hit a wall, they said, after growth, the CEO said. Here's one more. I can't resist. Unofficially, profligacy became passe on October 6th when disgraced Lehman Brothers CEO Richard Fold appeared at a congressional hearing after the firm's historic $600 billion bankruptcy, he encountered a blizzard of scorn over his half-billion-dollar compensation and baronial lifestyle, a $21 million Park Avenue penthouse, $25 million estate in Greenwich, Connecticut, and an estimated $200 million art collection. Representative Henry Waxman asked, I have a basic question for you. Is this fair? Um, so um, then in the, same in the same issue, this week's issue, there's a, an interview with Al Gore talking about 
what's going to be needed to make change in our, uh, in our lifestyles, in, uh, in the planet, and the, what he calls the dangers of illusion. It's called don't count on magic, meaning we've got to do something, actually, if we care. And uh, last week, or a couple of weeks ago, I'm sure everybody saw the, the CEOs, the, the Detroit CEOs, getting blasted for coming in their private jets. And this week, they, they each drove their hybrids, <laughs> their respective companies' hybrids, 550 miles or however it was, long it was from Detroit to Washington. Um, the SUVs are out, you know, and Priuses and hybrids. By the way, you know the Berkeley is the number one Prius um, sales in uh, in the country. Yeah, I mean we we are a little bit ahead of the of the game. Not you know just uh, it's it's. Cool being from Berkeley. Of course, you see, like every third car is a Prius. It's amazing, but hey, that's pretty good. So this isn't um, just for the rich and famous, and just about the rich and famous. I came across a few um, really amazing statistics. Um, this is a, a, an excellent book. I highly recommend called Hook by uh, actually a friend, Stephanie Kaza. We used to be on the board of Buddhist Peace Fellowship together about 25 years ago. She's a really um, gifted environmentalist. And it's, an, it's a collection of many, many essays. Joseph Goldstein, Pema Chodron, and many, many people of that level. Buddhist writings on greed, desire, and the urge to consume. Um, and in it, a couple of striking statistics. The average American spends two to three times uh, the amount of time shopping than Europeans. Creates four and a half pounds of garbage each day. That is twice the amount th of 30 years ago. And that each garbage can we put out represents 70 cans from business to produce the goods in one garbage can. Americans, and this was actually uh, from about 2000, I think this that one particular essay was. Or made 2005. Americans spend more for trash bags, more just on trash bags, than 90 of the world's 210 countries. 90 countries don't spend as much as we do on trash bags. Mm. So, um, how did we get here? How did that happen? There's a, a fabulous video that I recommend, and uh, maybe I'll put a link on the website, um, called The Story of Stuff. How many people have seen The Story of Stuff? 
it's mind-boggling. It's about 20 minutes, 17 or 20 minutes or so, by this woman, Annie Leonard. Very engaging. Shows how the, the links going from uh, of our production and consumption patterns and the, the disastrous effects that come from being manipulated by forces of greed, going from extraction to sales to use and, dis and disposal. And basically, we're, we're drowning in our own stuff. And uh, in, the, um, in the video, every time uh, there's, there's, there's this one thing about, one piece about consuming, about actually buying and it lights up with, with a, like a dollar sign and, and the trumpets blare gold, like, oh, it's going to be so good if you get this next thing, that that's the piece that we get um, manipulated by. So how did this happen? Just doing some research. Uh, oh, it was in that video, actually. After World War II, the post-war capitalism techniques became extraordinarily sophisticated. You know, we, we got out of the Depression, got through the, the 40s just kind of producing a whole lot of stuff, and we were still on this producing role. And uh, it just catapulted the consumer culture to a new level. This is, um, let's see if I can find it. From economist Victor Lebeau in 1955, who said, our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction in consumption. We need things consumed, burned up, replaced, and discarded at an ever-accelerating rate. Now, he sometimes, I looked this up, uh, he sometimes gets a really bad name for that, uh, that quote, but actually it turns out he wasn't saying, go, 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 he was describing the situation. During that same time, uh, Eisenhower's, this is in the 1950s, Eisenhower's chairman of the, on the Council of Economic Advisors said, the ultimate purpose of the American economy is to produce more consumer goods. That's, that's the purpose of our economy, to produce consumer goods, not more schools, not more roads, not more housing for people, not art or things that inspire, but we need to produce goods that can be consumed. That's what will perpetuate our prosperity. So in that paradigm, 
Who are we? We are not individuals. We are not even human beings. We are consumers. We are consumer units. Units of consumption. That is how we are thought of by by all the you know by the all the corporations, all the everyone in, in business to some not everyone in business, everyone in business for a bottom line, um, you know, we are consumers. And in that um, it is, a, it is run by fanning our wanting mind. That contentment is subversive. And in fact, I've, I've said this before when we were uh, studying Ajahn Buddhadasa, um, in, uh, in the Vietnam era, in the uh, late 60s uh, and early 70s, uh, the U.S. government uh, was very close with Thailand. You know, they were a, a very uh, important um, ally in landing and having R&R, &R and, uh, and, and they were the non-communist country we could depend on <clears throat> in that area. And... Um, the U.S. government real, wanting capitalism to win out over communism um, wanted to build, make Thailand as much of a consumer society as possible. So the advisors, the American top U.S. advisors, strongly encouraged the Thai government to um, have the Buddhist monastic community banned teachings on contentment. <laughs> this, is, this is true. You can read, you can read about it, and it's, it's mentioned in about, oh, three or four essays in, uh, in this book, Hooked. It's, it's quite, you know, it's public. This is not like, oh, did that really happen? Yeah, it really happened. And actually, um, it was going to happen that the monastic community had actually basically agreed to go along with that except for the sheer will and respect and, um, and power of Ajahn Buddhadasa, who was the, one of the most revered of all and the most socially engaged of all uh, monastics in that era. He said, this is not Buddhism. And he kind of brought them to their senses. Contentment is subversive. And you can see it, you know, it, it, it's taught in Thailand and taught in, you know, basic Buddha Dharma. But um, in, if you go to Thailand, which this week is better than last week, it seems, if you've ever been to Bangkok and you see the polluted, choke-filled traffic jams and uh, crowds in the commercial districts, it's really sad what we've turned, at least Bangkok, 
into oh, what we facilitated turning it into. Um, it's obvious, perhaps, of course, to us, I'd say most everybody here, it's obvious that consumption doesn't raise your level of happiness. Uh, that, that quote I've said before, uh, somebody asked uh, John D. Rockefeller, how much money will be enough? And his reply was, just a little more. <laughs> that's, that's the way the game is set up, that desires fulfilled don't lead to a sense of satisfaction and satiation, but actually stimulate the wanting mind. I always find that so fascinating. You know, it, it could have been set up a little bit differently where you get what you want and say, ah, that's so nice. <laughs> but that's not how it works. It, it is for a few moments. Oh, that's so nice. And it feels so good to have that desire gratified. I think I'll just manufacture another one and get that gratified. Not that we say that consciously, but that that moment of fulfillment of gratification is so seductive that we keep on going for that end of desire. Whereas if we really see, as the Buddha saw, where happiness is found, yeah, it's found in the end of desire, but there's another way than manufacturing another desire and getting that fulfilled. That's, that's the part that they don't tell us. There is another way. Oh, the end of desire, when I'm not caught, when I'm not hooked, as Stephanie Kaza says, by the next thing that propels me forward and says, yes, this is going to do it. When that desire ends, such a relief. It's so, it's like you're putting down the burden, this baggage that's toppled you forward that says, your life right now isn't enough, and it will be if you get this, that's what we get hooked, or it will be if you see, oh, your life right now is completely complete. That takes real mindfulness. And it's, it, it's, it's not anything to get oh, uh, discouraged about, embarrassed about, that you get hooked in it. Even there's a story, maybe you've heard of, of the Dalai Lama, who was giving uh, teachings down in LA and each day he'd stop on the way to the teachings and visit the, uh, uh, the electronic gadget uh, areas. And I might have told this when we were talking about renunciation a few months ago, so forgive me if it's redundant. But he, um, he'd get out and he'd look, he loves watches and he loves you know, gadgets and things. And each week, he'd, uh, each day, he'd get out and look at all of these things. And he said by the end of the, of the week, he was wanting things that he never knew existed before. <laughs> yeah. So if, if that's the Dalai Lama, you know, let's cut ourselves a little bit of slack. <laughs> in, 
it's so seductive. You know, they, there's, there's, they make no bones about it in some of the commercials. I, you know, the, the Lay's commercial that used to go on for years, you know, Lay's chips. Bet you can't eat just one. You know? That's what it's all about. Bet you can't have just one. It's going to feel so good. The next, you think this one's good. The next one's going to be even better. Well, this is where practice comes in. And also, it certainly helps to have articles on luxury shame <laughs> and it being in to be simple, to go for simplifying, to go for um, modesty in our consumption. That's, that's amazing that there's that paradigm shift in such a short time, actually. The Buddha, in a very profound discourse, Majima 19, for the, those who like to study those things, he says, before he was enlightened, he looked at his mind and he saw two kinds of thoughts, two categories of thoughts. Thoughts that lead to suffering, affliction, pain, disturbance, and thoughts that lead to happiness and ease and well-being. In the first category of thoughts, or thoughts of ill will, cruelty, and desire, sense desire. Uh, and you, again, uh, as I've said this before, you might take heart that the Buddha near his enlightenment, had thoughts of ill will and cruelty in his mind. It's just those thoughts can come. But the all of those thoughts, including the thoughts of wanting more, he saw when I took a look at it, it was very painful. It led to my affliction, the, the, the words are, the affliction of others or the affliction of both. That's one category of thoughts. The second category of thoughts that led to well-being and happiness and joy were thoughts of non-ill will, loving kindness, non-cruelty, compassion, and non-desire, what is often translated as renunciation. He said, those thoughts, whenever I, my mind dwelled on those, it got lighter. It felt better. Now, we usually don't think of the word renunciation as a thought connected with joy and happiness. Oh, great, I'm going to renounce today. How, how wonderful, how uplifting. But as I have said before, that perhaps a better word than renunciation is um, simplicity which we all crave so much. You know how good it feels when you clean out your closet? Oh, there's all this space. It's much more invigorating than having all the stuff. Oh, when am I going to get rid of all that stuff? The story of stuff, we're all living it. And he said, those thoughts of simplicity, of, of, doing, of, of not needing more, 
actually our great relief because you're putting down the baggage of all of this stuff that you're carrying around. You're putting down, you're separating what you need from what you want. What you want is endless. What you need has a bit more, uh, a lot more healthy parameters. And it's easy to miss the subtlety and the profundity of the joy of contentment. Because it, it's not as exciting. It doesn't have the, the same bells and whistles and rush of gratification that comes when you get a new toy, you know, your new whatever it is. Oh, that's going to be so cool. Oh, it's the latest I whatever or, you know, oh, groovy. It feels good, doesn't it? Just like it, the ice cream cone feels good. Yeah. That's obvious, the bells and whistles and the, and the rush. But the subtler and more profound and more lasting sense of completion and joy is that of contentment. You have to really be present for it because there's not a big bell and whistle saying, isn't this groovy? It's like, oh, doesn't this feel good to not be in this state of wanting? There's one Buddhist principle that um, comes into play here that perhaps you're not uh, as familiar with. It doesn't make the big lists. It's the concept, it's called matanuta moderation. You've ever gone to uh, Spirit Rock retreats, you go through the lunch line and you see that moderation, please. You know, it's, it's probably doesn't bring you joy, you know, as they've got the date rolls today, you know, moderation, please. You know. But actually moderation is a very profound practice. And what, mod what matanuta is in moderation in the more mm, inspiring way to hold it is knowing just the right amount. There's a, a wonderful um, essay in this book. Oh yeah, it's in it's an an essay um, by Ajahn Amro. It's a great essay. Three robes is enough, but in it he quotes this um, uh, Paiuto, Venerable Paiuto, Matanuta, moderation, means knowing the optimal amount, how much is just right. It is an awareness of that optimum point where the enhancement of true well-being coincides with the experience of satisfaction. The optimum point or point of balance is attained when we experience satisfaction at having answered the need for quality of life or well-being. So consumption, wise consumption attuned with this 
must be balanced to an amount appropriate to the attainment of well-being rather than to the satisfaction of desires. You know that point where you, where you say, mm, I think I've had enough. Yeah. You can go either of two ways after that. You know? I, we just went through Thanksgiving. Maybe you had your own challenges there. You know? my, uh, we, we go down to uh, my, my family in uh, Southern California for Thanksgiving. My, my mom and my, uh, my my oldest son, uh, Tony, and his family, and my, uh, my sister, Susan. My sister makes these, she just loves to cook and nurture and feed people, and she's a great cook. You know. We had two Thanksgivings, because she made two turkeys, and the second night we, we got to the second turkey. Um, you know that point where you say, I think I've had enough. If you really listen to it, it's, it's like a, what do they call it, the still small voice from within. You know? I think I've had enough. When you listen to it, how does it feel? It's, it's empowering. It's, um, there's a wisdom there. Sometimes I think that the whole spiritual journey is understanding and getting the power of delayed gratification. Where when you go for the immediate hit, oh, this is going to, I think I've had enough, but it tasted so good, so just a little bit more. And then afterwards, you realize, oh, mm, I got kind of bloated now, I'm tired. <laughs> got to walk this off. Oh, I can't believe what the scale is going to look like. And, not realizing that if we can stop ourselves at that optimal point of moderation where we feel satisfied and there's a well-being that will be continuing on, that's, that's where real happiness lies. But it takes some, some wisdom and it takes some mindful attention. So, this idea of renunciation of nakama in, in uh, Buddhist, uh, in Pali, the word is nakama. Renunciation or simplicity is, is changing our goal from happiness being about quelling our desires to happiness being about living in that space of well-being as much as we can. So it's not deprivation, it's not martyrdom, martyrdom. You're not doing it to yourself, you know, oh, I'll, I'll be a martyr and, you know, I'll, I'll let go. You're doing it for yourself. That's a huge shift where you're not going for deprivation, but you're going for well-being. Um, it was in... Um, Uh, in the uh, in that that joy course, one of the uh, one of the monthly practices is letting go and simplifying. And there was this one 
one woman who, who uh, a couple of years ago uh, took this practice and really ran with it. She was seeing that um, letting go is being at peace with what is and what one has, quite the opposite of the premise of the more you get, the better. And so this is really getting clear to her. She, this is her writing. And, and she was feeling some discomfort at what she calls a little too much spontaneous buying in my own life. So she developed this practice. This is her talking. I decided to make a commitment for some period of time to not buy anything for myself other than groceries and necessities in the grocery store. A lay version of the monastic vow about not handling money. I kept a little list of all those things that I think I really need in order to be happy. When the impulse arose to buy, whether a Starbucks coffee or a spiritual book, I would just note down the item, notice my feelings and reactions, and move on. I discovered a few hours or days later <clears throat> that I had managed to survive and be happy without having made the purchase. It was quite liberating. She, she took this on actually for a number of months. And I just saw her as she was in Sacramento. <clears throat> she said it was such a profound practice for her. And, uh, it shifted things in her. So you might think that, oh, if, if I'm really going to renounce, that means giving up everything I've got. And that's not, not so. It doesn't mean to give up more than what you need. And it also doesn't even mean to, um, to not be able to enjoy your good fortune and prosperity. I, I think I've mentioned this recently. The, the, uh, uh, the main patron of the Buddha was Anatta Pindaka, this tremendously wealthy businessman who, um, uh, who provided the, the Buddha with the Jetta Grove and with uh, all, of his, all of his needs for quite some time. And he heard a talk on renunciation that the Buddha gave, and he was saying, oh gosh, you know, Maybe, uh, maybe I should give everything up. Maybe I'm missing the boat here and become, maybe I should become a monk. And the Buddha says, um, no, Anattapindaka, it, it, it is your karma to have good fortune. A person who possesses riches and uses them wisely is a blessing to humanity. So it doesn't mean you've got to go out with a begging bowl. It means whatever your blessings are, use them wisely. Feel gratitude for them and realize it's not about just a little more. It's about being able to do wonderful things. Enjoy your life and make, your li make, make the lives of others around you that much better as well. Now, this voluntary simplicity with the consciousness that we're in um, that we're all in this together, there's another reason for being simple. You're part of something so much bigger. It's, you know, it used to be, well, you know, I'll, I'll do my bit, but gosh, everybody else looks like they're having so much fun. Now with luxury shame, it's, it's 
cool to be in and to be in on the collective consciousness that we are making a difference in the planet. And the question is whether it's, we're doing this in time or it's too late. But things have happened very fast on all, all different fronts, whether it's political possibilities or economic paradigms or the, the world as divided boundaries or um, coming together for something um, for the common good. As my friend Roger Walsh says, that race between fear and consciousness and it can turn so fast and it's happening so fast. So um, what's the alternative right? but to do our part? I want to read to you, actually, it's, uh, I'll just end with this, with this quote that I love from John Seed, who is um, one of the, the really um, inspiring voices for deep ecology. He teaches a lot uh, with Joanna Macy, or used to, anyway. Uh, he's from Australia. And um, the whole deep ecology movement is really the application of dharma, of Buddhist thought, into, uh, into ecology. And this was his quote, or this, it was actually an interview with, uh, with Ram Dass that he did in 1991. He says, um, <clears throat> in the end, you know, uh, perhaps nothing but a miracle would be of any use at this time. When you look at the rate of destruction, whether it's of the rainforest or the ozone layer, the climate, all of these things that are happening, and if you were able to multiply all the efforts of conservationists by a factor of 10 or even 100, it might not be enough. So there's nothing on the horizon that can help us, you know. And so then you think, well, what kind of miracle would be needed? to change things around? Well, it would be a very simple one, really. All we would need, all it would need, would be for human beings to wake up one day different than they were the day before, <laughs> realizing that this is the end unless we make these changes, and then decide to make the change. That doesn't seem like a very likely thing to happen. But on the other hand, the whole road that we've traveled is so littered with miracles that it's only our strange kind of modern psyche that refuses to see it. I mean, the miracle of being descended from a fish that chose to leave the water to walk on land, well, with a pedigree like that, anything is possible. <laughs> That was 1991. And now it seems like we are waking up thinking, oh, time to change. And we're thinking it very fast when it gets in Newsweek, when it's, when it's the, the main thing on everybody's mind, when the, when the big three from Detroit come with begging bowls in hand saying, 
SUVs didn't quite do it. And we're going to go under. Please help us out. It's no longer, oh, big, big corporations say, oh, yeah, we'll throw you a bone here. They've got their begging bowl out saying, help, because this doesn't work. That is a huge opportunity that we can all, that we all are part of. Isn't it exciting? You know, it's scary as hell, but how exciting it is. You know that, that uh, Chinese uh, symbol for crisis, danger plus opportunity. That's, that's what we've got here. So all the dicey times, you know, it's like the stars aligning for this amazing tectonic shift that I think not only are we crying for, but we're, the Earth is crying for, but we're ready for. So with that in mind, I'm, I'm really looking forward to next week with Deborah coming and seeing how can we do this consciously? How can we make it fun? How can we support each other? How can we become agents of consciousness and not only do our part, but kind of have a rippling effect? Because they are also training people to run their own groups. So uh, I just want to have, have us all reflect for a few moments, and then we can have a, a conversation. Um, Close your eyes for a moment. And uh, first about contentment. Ask yourself, when am I content? When am I truly content? What are the conditions that are, that are needed for contentment to arise in me? And how is it compared to that rush of getting what you want? The, the trajectory, both before, during, and after. Not to put one down, but just to see for yourself. If you could choose between a lifestyle of emphasizing one or the other, which would you go for? And then the second reflection, how would your life change if you were even more, perhaps you are already very, but even more conscious of consumption, of your consumption, than you are now, where it became a kind of thing that you do because that's what you do, because it feels worth it. How would your life change? How would it feel inside? How would it feel to perhaps be an agent of that change? Just by your being. 
somewhere in between doing talking to each other or um, group, but it feels better to do a group just to hear collective. How many people would would rather uh, have a little dyad with each other? Yeah, that's what I thought. Until you did, then everybody would say, "Oh, that's so good. I'm so glad I <laughs> spoke." Yeah. But uh, just because we're doing this as a group, let's let's check in as a as a group. Just what what comes up for you? Any any thoughts? I've talked about a lot. Uh, any thoughts about let's see, things that have been about contentment or change or any of this? And yeah. Is it on? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, this is in response to more to your talk than the last bit that you said, but um, I don't mean to be the skeptic. <laughs> Go ahead. You know, be real. I, I think all the individual efforts are important, but there's still the coal plants, you know, that are the biggest polluters, and there's the big structural things. So, um, yeah. I don't know, I guess, you know, we have to be activists also and put pressure on corporations to change and make dramatic structural changes and, and pressure on the Obama administration to really follow through with some of his promises, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and just one sort of tangential thing, I'm really irked and concerned by the co-optation of everything that's green. I mean, a lot of people have probably seen these ads mm -hmm. by Exxon mm -hmm. with the you know, smooth-talking man and the groovy pictures and how green they are, and it's complete bullshit. You know, and some people will be fooled by that. And mm -hmm. I, I just hate that co-opting of, you know, the, a really good, powerful green movement. Yeah, I, I agree completely with both, both of those. And <coughs> when we're embodying them more, <coughs> when we're living <coughs> more consciously and it's I mean, think how, how fast at least the consciousness on, on, the, on the superficial level has changed. When we're embodying it, um, what is it? There's this Stanford survey, uh, uh, Stanford study that says uh, all you need is a seven percent shift of belief in a, in a um, population for there to be a new paradigm. And then that wave becomes more and more the way things are. That shift has definitely happened. And there's a, a whole wake of change that will, uh, that will come. So it's, you're right. You can't just say, oh, well, oh, Exxon is green. Isn't that wonderful? Um, it's embodying it and being more and more conscious and just like you know Berkeley is the the forward edge in, in Priuses and then the rest of the country kind of catches up it, it's it's like that you you have to both be committed patient and persistent uh, and all of those things coming together that's exactly what Al Gore said in his article, it's, it's, it, it's don't count on it, uh, on the magic. And he talks about coal and the, 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 um, the uh, fallacy of clean coal and all. And this is more and more becoming part of our consciousness. So we do our part and doing it 
the way I see it, doing it from a place of, of joy, if I can use the word, of loving the planet. That's what I love about uh, his movie, Inconvenient Truth. He wasn't saying, this is awful, I can't stand this. And He's saying, get in touch with how much you love the planet. Do it out of love. Do it out of joy. That's so much more magnetizing than tearing our hair out and saying, oh no, we're getting, it's getting co-opted. Yeah, you have to point the finger and say, look at this, shine the light, but coming from a place of how good it feels to care about the planet and each other. So not to sacrifice that element while we're doing our work and those who are really being activists on the front lines are doing it in a way that magnetizes inspiration from others. That's how I see it. I just wanted to ask what magazine the Gore article's in. Uh, this, this week's Newsweek. With, uh, <laughs> how to Fix the World is the, uh, <laughs> is the title. <laughs> With Obama coming out of, a, out of an airplane. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I just I had a personal experience. Mm -hmm. I had the great fortune of, of living in India, 76, 77, mm -hmm. and I lived a whole year out of a suitcase, mm -hmm. had water only twice a day, and, um, you know, I came back and I lived just fine, and it was great. So, mm -hmm. and I took it back with me. I mean, I well, have a washing machine, but I don't use the dryer. Mm. And um, I don't have a garbage disposal. Mm. I don't have a dishwasher. Mm. Mm -hmm. And um, it's fun to be inventive. In mm. you know, I would be. I'm not the consumer. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, it sadhu, changed my sadhu, life. Sadhu. It, it, really it changed your life. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. probably a fair a few moments of happiness in there. Oh, lots. I'm really for me. I'm really excited about the possibility of, of, of changing things even more. You can be cr yeah. truly creative. Yeah, beautiful. Last comment right up, right up here. I think we can do things individually too. I, I've been saving money and um, was waiting for Berkeley to do this financing thing where you could put solar on your roof. And they got around to saying 40 people this year, you know, probably friends of the city council. So I took savings and I put solar, uh, they're going on now, solar panels on my house. Mm -hmm. And I put more than my usual electrical use because I'm planning in a couple of years to get an electric car. So in the meantime, you know, PG&E will get the benefit of the extra grid power. But still, if more people do that, mm -hmm. then there won't be a market for dirty coal. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because if everybody or 80%, 50% of the people in California put a solar roof on, mm -hmm. we wouldn't need it. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. That's great. And, and that'll be part of next week where, uh, where Deborah comes from the Ecology Center and uh, gives us lots of different um, possibilities, but also organizes and getting us clear, okay, are we ready to, to do this? And in so Germany, they, ha they require solar roofs on new buildings and things. And you know, it's freezing and it's far north. Hmm. And it's still effective. Hmm. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so uh, let's close with a short loving kindness. And as you do, first uh, get in touch with 
how much you love this planet. What an amazing planet we've been gifted. That's gifted us. And how much the earth is, if I can anthropomorphize, praying for us to do the wisest things, make the wisest choices. Let yourself delight in the fact that you love the planet and that you love life. Breathe in benevolence from around you. Breathe in the benevolence of life and let it fill your being. You can breathe right through your heart. Let it fill you. Touch the goodness inside of you. And then as you breathe out, just extending it out, surrounding yourself and radiating it out. We all share this benevolent field. And then send some kind thoughts to yourself. May I delight in being as conscious as I can. May I feel all the, the caring and love inside and share it well. May I wake up to the truth, my true nature, and see beyond the illusion of separation. And then extending these thoughts to everybody here and to all beings everywhere on the planet who will benefit from our consciousness. May all beings delight in becoming more conscious. May all beings go for the real happiness. Understand where it lies. May all share their caring and their love well. May all awaken to their true nature. And may our coming here together have a beneficial effect, not only for ourselves, but for everyone in our lives, and ripple out to be of benefit to all beings everywhere. May all beings find happiness and peace. Thank you very much. Come on next week. Let's do this together. It'll be fun. Have a great week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.